Hello and welcome to Who Watches the World Cup, the only podcast where we drink in the morning because England lost the Euros final. Dave, how are you doing? <laughs> well, maybe I'm doing a bit better than you. Cracking open a cider on a Tuesday afternoon. Well, it's like midday on a Tuesday. We've had to, yeah. we should say actually, it's been a couple of days since the final actually happened. And mm-hmm. I think we, well, I'll speak for myself. I think I needed some time to to digest um, before we could go into uh, to breaking this all down. Yep, I'm drinking on the morning because I'm spelling the morning with a U. That's the kind of morning I've been doing for the last few days. And uh, I'm not getting over it anytime soon, to be quite honest. So, uh, cheers. Cheers, I'll take a sip of my coffee while mm. you, uh, you do that. Fucking hell. I'm just going to get that out there early. The fucking hell. Fucking hell. Now, I expect that we have different feelings about this situation. Um, I imagine that you're coming in with a, a, bit, a little bit more like sorrow, some heartbreak. Oh, our boys, they did so well. They were so close. And I'm coming in here like, this is a fucking shambles. And <laughs> that's like, go for it. Tell me how you're feeling, how you felt in the build-up, how we got to now, like... Were you proud to have seen, you know, we got an extra step on the last World Cup. We got to the semis. This time we actually, we got to the final. Whoa. Whoa, man. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Um, wow. Yeah, no, I didn't. I wasn't wholly disappointed after the match. I guess I did kind of think, maybe like you were saying, well, you know, this is one step further than we got three years ago. And maybe thinking we would win, having not got to the final, a final in so long was was a, a dream too far. A bit of an idea above our station. Um, but I didn't have great confidence before the game. And a bit like what happened in the World Cup, for a moment, I almost let myself get carried away after we went 1-0 up. And even throughout most of the first half, I was like, oh shit, this, this could be... This could be it. And then things kind of reverted to typical typical England. And then as long, the longer the game went on, I just thought this is not going to end well. Um, so, yeah, by the time it all ended, by the time the last penalty um, was saved, I was kind of just like, well, yeah, I guess... That's kind of what what should have happened, really, isn't it? Why would we ever expect or hope for anything more than what we get as English football fans? Um, and I, I think some of the build-up um, maybe put a bit of a downer on my spirits uh, outside of football, in about issues external to football. Um, and the kind of uh, want and disregard for public health and safety... <laughs> Um, beforehand, kind of, uh, yeah, it kind of ruined the spectacle. It ruined the the event for me. Are these and the actions of the fans forcing is, their way into stadiums and so. Well, no, I didn't. Yeah, that that definitely exacerbated things. But even beforehand, when we uh, we've spoken a lot, and you've you've educated me quite a lot about the state of um, of COVID in the UK um, as it stands. So when the semi-final was announced, they'd allow 40,000 people into Wembley. I was kind of like, yeah. 
I don't think that's sensible, but I That understand. sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. Sounds that sounds like a bad idea and I and I my cynical brain is telling me exactly why this is happening and who's made this decision. Um and then yeah, when they increase the capacity even more to sixty thousand for the final, there's like it's that's even even worse idea. And then although the the scenes of fans gathered here, there and everywhere throughout the country were very jubilant and even the pundits were saying, Oh, isn't it great to see everyone's out supporting the nation? It just felt like it was really putting blinkers on and going, la, 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 we don't want to think about COVID anymore, blah, blah, blah. Let's just enjoy something for fuck's sake. Let's at least have a little bit of joy in our lives. And there, at least for me, I, I don't want to put a dampener on anyone who was trying to get, you know, reinvigorate their life with a bit of joy after the last 18 months we've had. Like, I understand that. It's just, it felt so premature and like uh, the powers that be were trying to win some popularity points instead of actually just looking out for the benefit of, of the masses. And so the football was harder to enjoy because of these external external factors for me, really. Um, yeah. And, and it kind of was brought home as I uh, I listened to your semi-final episode. Thank you very much for, for doing that on your own. I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, and as you pointed out, COVID has, has hit home literally for me this mm. week so yeah yeah it kind of was all that happened before um before the final we um my uh, my girlfriend got a positive uh test on a uh, result back on sunday morning after we both went and got tested on saturday so uh yeah even before the game started we had uh these um these home truths uh dropped dropped in our laps so yeah all things considered, even if I don't want to be too critical of, of the public and of the government and of UEFA, which I do because they deserve it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was all a um, bit harder to savour. Yeah, I think the, uh, the conversation about how the government have exacerbated fans is going to be something we're going to get very much into later on in this conversation. Um, and not just to do with COVID, but to do with, uh, with, with racism and things as well, because that's kind of going to be a, an unavoidable discussion now uh, at this point. Uh, yeah, I'm still angry. Yeah. And ev- were... every, everything about it has made me angrier as well. Right. Everything uh, surrounding it. And again, we'll get on to, uh, to, to that stuff later on, but just to stick with the actual football for the moment. Yeah, sure. Because you know how, at the beginning of the tournament, I ha- I was saying, the problem with England is they just can't score. And Raheem Sterling can't put the ball into Harry Kane. And Harry Kane can't, doesn't get any chances to take a shot on goal. And then when Jack Grealish comes on, oh, everything explodes and Luke Shaw can do things. Luke Shaw's a player we haven't been able to harness properly. And then we get to the final, and within three minutes, Luke Shaw scores. I'm like, well, I, I've previously apologised twice for England and Raheem Sterling actually playing football the way, especially during that Ukraine match, where it was like, oh my god, this is this is what they were supposed to be doing. This is amazing. And then in the final, I was proved vindicated, Dave. I was right all along, and England sucked. For for through well, for, I don't know how to. 120 minutes of it, I'd say England were 
frustrating and annoying for all but about 40, 35, 40 minutes of that game. That, that first 30 minutes was pretty spectacular football. And um, it's one of the things that my mum was saying, actually, because Italy were my mum's favourite team. Like, I was like Denmark the whole way through. And mum was like, no, Italy, they play amazing football. They look so great. And it when England, for the, for the first 30 minutes, uh, my mum said, England are playing like Italy. And that's why we're winning. And it was kind of true that we were playing really good, nice looking football. And then they became England again. And yeah. it's that thing that we've spoken about before, where it's that national mentality that it doesn't matter which players you're playing. It doesn't matter who the coach is. It's the England national team mentality that's just ingrained into them somehow that other countries don't have, but that we do. Where culturally, yeah, we got one, we tried, we didn't get another. So best that we sit back for the next 70 minutes. And, uh, you know, we don't press. We're just like, as soon as the Italians lost the ball, bam, they were on us. As soon as we lost the ball, it was all right, we better sit back. Yeah, it's a real, um, I think it's a real culture of, um, it's definitely a culture of fear, of being afraid to overexpose yourself in case you get, you get burned, basically. But it must come from a place of like, not feeling like we deserve anything. So that if we start with a bit of enthusiasm, especially from like minute one, when you walk out and you go, let's make this different. Let's make this not do it the way that we um, fall into naturally. Let's make a concerted effort to be dynamic and be exciting. And I don't just mean this in a footballing sense. I think this is kind of an English thing where we maybe have the capacity to step out from at the beginning and be like, let's do it. Let's look at us. Let's let's do this kind of American yeehaw, ride them cowboy, let's take it to them kind of attitude but then we don't really feel like our, our self-esteem is so low that when that succeeds or when we get something from it our first thought is not to go well that worked let's keep doing that our yeah, first thought is bed. yeah our first thought is oh my god i can't believe we got that now whatever you do don't let that go like mm-hmm. we can't we can't let this slip through our fingers so we get so defensive and negative as a as a people that we, uh, yeah, we, 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 we stifle ourselves and we forget how to express ourselves. And it just, yeah, it's just this fear of losing what we have instead of trying to go on and, and add to it and, and have even more. Yeah. And again, it was, it was, as we discussed on previous episodes, is Southgate a tactical genius for playing this kind of football where we never get any shots on goal, but we somehow managed to get through? Well, apparently not. Um, again, this this is the thing that makes me so angry, is that we will never have another tournament where we have such an advantage over everybody else, right? This whole tournament, we have had every possible advantage to the point where we basically put in a cheat code, right? We put in a cheat code that went, oh yeah, and by the way, we're playing all our bloody games at home, mate. And we put in a cheat code that went, oh, and by the way, the defenders at the back are over 30 years old and we've got like the fastest players in the tournament. Oh, by the way, mate, they've lost their best defender and the person who drove them forward this entire tournament, you know, he's gone. So we've got everybody like we've we've used the cheat code to get rid of everybody's injuries on our team and we put a major one on them. So it's like, well, we've hampered them now. And it's like, 
There will never be another tournament in which England are better prepared or better situated to win than this one. And if we can't win in the tournament where we are given everything, literally everything, then it's just not possible. Well, I actually wonder if it's, it could be argued the opposite way around in, in relation to what I was saying about we don't feel like we deserve anything to be easy. We feel like we have to do it a hard way. I wonder if it's more English for us to fail when we have every possible advantage and um, all, the, all, the, all, the, all the chips are in place for us to, to succeed. I wonder if it's more English for us to go against the grain and succeed against adversity like in Russia. That no one really expected us to get that far. And it was hard and we were far from home. And, you know, it was all um, more of a challenge on a daily basis. Maybe that's the, 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 the recipe for success. Instead of like sleeping in, you know, or being wrapped in cotton wool every step of the way. And then we get to dip our toe into, into chilly waters in Rome for one game. And then like, okay, don't worry. But you get, to, you get to come back home and sleep in your, sleep in your bed. Or I'm sure it's a during, at George's Park, they all have their set rooms and they Mm -hmm. every time they get called up to England they sleep in the same place and like it's all too cozy and too homey and I think maybe that's a hampering effect that's that doesn't help it's too you get too comfortable you and you've it's harder then to go from it's I think yeah I think it's easier to go from sleeping on like like that's like a a military like army kind of metaphor I think it's easier to go from sleeping in, in a cave on a rock to them stepping outside and going into lethal warfare than it is to be sleeping in a cosy bunk, riding on a helicopter, landing in the middle of a war zone and then being like, okay, shit, um, now I've got to do this army thing, this, uh, you know, this soldier thing. Whereas if you've been doing it day after day after day for weeks with no breaks, maybe the mentality is that you make that shift a, a bit easier. I don't yeah, know. yeah. Yeah, there are a few things I've been been listening to recently, a book by the Hardcore Histories podcaster, Dan Carlin, who I was listening to when I was at yours, actually. I was listening to his podcast, Supernova in the East, about the the Japanese in World War II. Oh, yeah, yeah, that guy, yeah. Yeah, I was listening to uh, to his book called The End is Near this week. And um, he goes on, uh, the first, I think it's either the preface or the first chapter, is all about the the unquantifiable... Um, trait that is toughness and how we as humans look back on previous generations or on different societies and go that is a society or a generation that was tough right and we we especially say this about like our world war ii generations right where we've got that blitz generation in the uk where they were born and they grew up through the great depression in the, you know, the late 1920s. Like they, their parents went through the First World War, they went through the Spanish flu, they went through the Great Depression, and then, oh, by the way, here's Hitler in the Second World War. You can imagine, and as Dan Carlin explains, you can see how that might toughen the human society up. And we have, we have societies through human history, like ancient Sparta, where the entire culture is designed to toughen you up. If as a baby you are not tough enough, they'll throw you off a cliff. 
And, you know, as you go through life, when you're about six years old, they just take you away from your parents and go, right, you've had your, you've had your breastfeeding. Now it's time to toughen you up. And then as a teenager, they stop feeding you and they say, you've got to steal your food. But if you're caught, we'll whip you for it to toughen you up. And then you go through a human, you know, and then eventually you become part of the, the city militia, the city army. And when you go and fight Athens, well, it's, Athens is a city of poets and pottery makers. So what chance do they stand against this city that have been raised stealing, being whipped, being torn away from their parents, being trained? And we look at the current England crop of players and they have faced so much adversity from their own country. But at the club level, the only person on that England team who is fucking tough enough is Luke Shaw. And the reason that Luke Shaw was, to my mind, the England player of the tournament is because he was great, then he was injured, then he had Mourinho being an absolute fuck to him for years, and then he came back from that and was like, right, now I'm the best player on the England squad. And you could say, did the Mourinho coaching thing work for Luke Shaw? Not while Mourinho was the coach there. It ruined Luke Shaw. But then Ole Gunnar Solskjaer comes in and goes, I'm going to give you the kind of management that you need. But Luke Shaw has been whipped for the last three years and he's able to grow into something. Right. There was no expectation on Luke Shaw because it's like, oh, we even played Trippier in the first game. We didn't even play Luke Shaw in the first game. No one expected Luke Shaw to be the difference maker, but he was in almost every game. Luke Shaw was the difference maker. He got the assists. He got the goal in this one. Like Luke Shaw is England's player of the tournament. And he was tough. He was tough. And the other person who was defensively tough actually was Kyle Walker. And for the whole tournament, I was saying Kyle Walker is a terrible right back. When we played four at the back and Kyle Walker was on the right, he was no good going forward, right? But when we played three at the back with Kyle Walker as like a sweeping defender, he was unbeatable. And like that, that was incredible to see, I thought. But the England, you know, Luke Shaw is tough. Kyle Walker played great defensive, you know, played a great defensive game. But Italy come in and they just... You know, what, what, have you got, what have you got against a steamroller when half your team are five foot seven speedy guys? What have you got against a steamroller? Well, not much in the end. Not enough. Yeah. Because what we have against, um, against a team like Italy was um, um, uh, an engine in midfield of Declan Rice and, and Calvin Phillips, who were great. All tournament, they they never stopped, and I think we kind of Jordan Henderson. I don't think really made any mistakes, but we missed um, Declan Rice when he went off yeah. for Jordan Henderson. Yeah, Declan Rice was great as well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, Calvin Phillips. I don't even know how he's managed to play like every single game the whole way through, and by the end he doesn't even look that tired. He's he's insane, um, and yeah, our 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 defensive central players, whether it be. Um, Stones and Maguire, or Stones, Maguire and Walker. Yeah, I thought they were they were strong. They were great. They didn't really put much uh, put much wrong. And what we conceded two goals 
from open play in the whole tournament, both of which were kind of the result of set pieces. So, for, so not not even open play. I take obviously that's that's a, a miss a miss uh, I misspoke there. Uh, two goals from set pieces. So our actual open play defending was was pretty good. But then, yeah, they were Italy were relentless. Once they got their foot their foot in the game, and like right before half time, they kind of started to to emerge and I was kind of thinking watching that first half I do I kind of hope wouldn't it be great if the rules could change for this one game and it's just 90 minutes straight because what England don't want now is half time where they can relax and take the and you know, take the weight off and Italy can go into their changing room and be like okay this hasn't gone well we need yeah. to make a change change it up yeah and which yeah. is what they did and it worked they just changed their way they played and their mentality and England had no answer for it because we didn't change anything. A, a typical Southgate, we'd have made no real changes. Um, well, he made he made that change. I think it was after immediately after Italy scored. Southgate took off Trippier, brought on Saka, and swapped to four at the back. Yeah, right? which makes sense. And, like that. Yeah, but to me, that. yeah, I thought that was the death sentence at that point. To my mind, because I I understand why you do that, but the problem, exactly as you're saying. The problem wasn't that we had three at the back because we conceded no goals from open play at all, right? The whole point of having three at the back was that it allowed Shaw and Trippier to push up, right? And it allows Maguire to push up from the central defence as well. So you have your two defenders at the back. You've got Stones and Walker, Walker sweeping in around the back. And then you've got essentially three players at the back who can drive you forward. But the minute you take that away... Shaw can't go up. Walker, now on the right, can't go up. So all you have done is brought on Saka, who is fast, but he isn't giving you anything because there's nobody behind him to drive stuff up. Yeah, I think I said right. I messaged you at that time. Like, I can't figure out where Saka is supposed to be playing here. Yeah, yeah. Like, is, is he supposed to be playing as part of a front three or is if they put him in the midfield three for some reason? Like, I couldn't figure out where he was supposed to be and he never seemed to uh, fit into either either system really and I'm not sure that was that was the right I'm definitely not sure that was the right move and he, he didn't show what he kind of shown in other games and I wonder if he's more of a player who has a better impact from the start than he does coming off the bench especially against um, a team like Italy who are very hard like we talked about toughness Italy are tough yeah and yeah. Then, then even in that one moment where he kind of got away from Chiellini and Chiellini dragged him back by his neck Mm-hmm. That was the only thing I can really remember him doing, and that made me quite. I that made me a little bit angry because, like, by the letter of the law, if you pull someone back by their shirt, it's a yellow card. But I don't know. I think there should be some, there. I think there's that some room he, for interpretation there, where that is dangerous play. Like that's yes, that that could cause serious harm. And yeah, that it was basically a tombstone pile driver. Yeah, where I, he, I would, he 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 yeah. got him by the neck and threw him to the ground. Yeah, and Saka. It wasn't like Saka went into a foul, like Graylish might play into a foul. Saka had forward momentum, and then he was pulled off his feet. Like there should, to again, I'm English, but to my mind, Italy could easily have had two red cards in this game. Yeah, they had yeah. five yellow cards. Five of their players got yellow cards in the game, with no with no sending off. 
they could easily have had two. Yeah, easily. I think... I, I mean, if that, that one on Saka, if Maguire does that on Chiesa and he gets a red card, I'm kind of like, well, yeah, I get it because that yeah. is fucking ridiculous. What a stupid thing to do. Whereas, because all he had to do, be it um, Chiellini in real life or Maguire in this imagined flip scenario, just it's the, it's the bottom of the shirt. Just pull him by the side of his shirt. You, you do that um, cynical foul that stops them from momentum. You take the yellow card and you protect your team. Um but that was not. That was reckless and endangered the other player. And I think the other red card you're thinking of is when um, Jorginho stamped on Jack Grealish in yes. extra time, which, again, to me, seemed like a stone wall penalty. And VAR has kind of not really been all that involved in a lot of... in a load of games and or loads of instances throughout the, this tournament, which I suppose has been good. I think it has been used quite um, moderately. But then that was one where I think that VAR should be like, well, he clearly stamps on the guy, so I kind of think we need the referee to check whether he thinks this was intentional or not. But they didn't. They never called um, Bjorn Kjaipers over to the sideline once to check anything, even when Sterling went down for a possible penalty. And like a few different angles, that was a little bit... Um, what's the word? Like you've seen them given that kind of that kind of cliche. And I think actually he did get tripped. If you watch some of the, one of the angles of the replays, I think it's Bonucci because Sterling's trying to sort of cut between Bonucci and Chiellini. I think Bonucci does trip. He kicks the back of Sterling's leg, which knocks him to the ground. And that was more contact on Sterling than there was on him for the Denmark penalty in the, in the semi-final. Yeah. So again, these are kind of things that the referee should be encouraged to have a second look at. Um, and maybe things go differently, but ultimately we're talking about a couple of nitty gritty decisions, which we're sure hopefully would have swung things in England's favour because I feel like they were unfair advantages. The fact that these players got to stay on the pitch, but we we don't know. And it could it could also be very England to have a man sent off for the other team or even two, and then still struggle. To, to break down yeah. Italy because if anything Italy and England have been the two hardest teams to break down this whole tournament and it seemed like and certainly showed in the game that if you're going to score against Italy do it right at the beginning when maybe they're a little bit caught cold because once they get settled and once they get their, their hackles up they're almost impossible to break down yeah yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, you're right. I don't want to do the English thing of going. Oh, if the referee had done this, and if blah 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 blah. Like the worst thing that England do is when they come back and go, Ah, we played well. We just got unlucky with some of the decisions there. Like no, in that first twenty to thirty minutes, England should should have put two in the back of the net. Like they they should have done with the quality that they were playing, and this goes down ultimately to the fact that we only had six shots on target in the entire game. In that first half, where we dominated for 30 minutes, we had one shot on target, and that was the goal. Like, that's six shots over 120 minutes. Whereas Italy had 19 shots on target. They had 90, they had, sorry, they had, they had six shots on target, which is as many shots as we had all together. Right, they had sixty-six percent possession, and nineteen shots. And yeah, also they had twice as many fouls as we did, and they had five yellow cards. So you know, go figure. Also, you can say, 
they had 19 shots, six on target, but they only got a goal from a free kick. So that's good defending, right? But yeah. if, we're looking, if we're looking comparatively at the attack, this whole tournament has been let down by the people ahead of Phillips and Rice. Anyone ahead of Phillips and Rice has like massively underperformed this tournament. Well, well, massively maybe overstating it, but certainly blanket underperformed. Yes, like Harry Kane had a great spell of a couple of games where he remembered how to score, but I don't know if any of those six shots in the final were from him. I don't remember if he ever had a shot. Um, it took him a while throughout the group stages to to even get shots away, let alone let alone find any shots on target. Um, and some of it has to come down to management decisions as well. Because, I mean, when he, yeah. when um, Southgate brought Saka in, um, he performed brilliantly and he created things and he would terrorise defences. Sterling showed that he is um, has is almost, uh, uh, what's the word I was going to say? <laughs> Unleave-outable. <laughs> but yeah, like he, when he wants to be, he is a real terror as well. Sancho, when he came in, showed that he... he if he's given the chance, he can do great things. Grealish, we can all say, I mean, I'm sure we all will say, wasn't given enough pitch time because when he came on, he did change things. And I'm, I was annoyed when it took into extra time for him to bring him on in the final when we clearly needed something different and Southgate didn't take it. I, I don't, it's hard to, I don't think Southgate, I don't think we can, we can come away going Southgate fucked it. Because I can. Ultimately, we got we got this far, and so many of his decisions pr- uh, paid dividends. And the only ones he the times where he got it wrong was in the final. Either I don't think necessarily the form the formation from the start was wrong. Playing five at the back that you said, yeah, was, I think that was the right call. It yeah. was really it really effective, and it seems defensive, but actually, in with the way modern football mm-hmm. works and how fluid things are, like you say. It, it, um, five defenders looks defensive, but then really it's maybe three defenders and plus the wing backs, and then like you, yeah. s- and then Maguire or Stones or Walker can walk up. So sometimes you're left with just two yeah. at the back, and it just adds to this flowing of, of vertical transition up up the pitch. So it's if not um, the system, just the, maybe the personnel, and uh, when it came to changes, uh, was the. Was was the issues I think here, and we've seen and we've spoken before about his um, reluctance to make substitutions. Um, uh, maybe lack. I think maybe he lacked a little bit of courage in certain places, but then other times, like when he took Grealish off, having brought him on, like that's a bit that's ruthless, and it worked in the semi final against Denmark. And then he did the same thing to Jordan Henderson in the final, brought him on for Rice, and then took him off for someone who ended up taking a penalty, which. Can we talk about that while while I've landed on this? Yes. Can we talk about the strategy, Please. the tactic of with a couple of minutes to go in extra time, bringing, bringing on, on your penalty takers, bringing on penalty takers? Because uh, I guess if Sancho and Rashford had scored their penalties, we'd have been like Southgate, brilliant. But so maybe you can't blame. Oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know who to blame. Do I don't you know, know whether no, to blame you know the choice this, because this this brings me back to that conversation we had a couple of episodes ago, where I was saying about the the New Orleans Saints, coach the onside kick, yeah, with the onside kick. Yeah, Sean Payton, the the coach for the New Orleans Saints, has was kind of heralded as 
a strategic mastermind for starting the second half of the Super Bowl with an onside kick. It was radical. No one ever thought of it. It, it couldn't even have been considered. And it was like, wow, this guy's a, a tactical mastermind. And uh, they said that because it succeeded. But if he had failed, people would have been like, he's crazy. What is he doing? And the, what the pundit said would have been completely the opposite thing, right? Like your worth is based upon whether it's successful or not, not the idea of the action itself. The action itself could be tactically sound or fucking batshit crazy. But if it works, you're a genius. And if it fails, you're not. And that's one of the things about Southgate here is that he has been tactically conservative the entire tournament. And we know that because we've only scored, like, we scored four goals in four games. And that was it. Right, those first four games, we only scored four goals. Then in Ukraine, we got four goals and everyone was like, wow, this is it. England, they're, they're here. Um, but it was the Germany game that gave a lot of people, including myself, the chance to go, all right, Southgate. Okay, I haven't been sure up until now, but a 2-1 win over Germany, that gives you a lot of credit in everyone's book. And then we get here again, and he plays tactically conservative the entire game to his detriment again. Why did we not beat Scotland? Southgate was being tactically conservative, right? Why did we scrape through those other games? Southgate was being tactically conservative. And by deciding not to make any big changes, he doesn't only go to Solskjaer. Right, that thing I was always terrified of was that he was going to end up doing what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer did in the Europa League final and not make any changes and then screw it on penalties. And when he brings on Grealish, it's too late by then. Yeah, I can imagine the pressure on Jack Grealish then. It's, it's like we, we bring him on when we need a goal and that's why he didn't come on against the Ukraine. Um, and that's why Southgate put his arm around him, I presume, and said, listen, we didn't need you. So we'll bring you on when we need you. But then you're going, I don't, I'd love to know, I haven't got it in front of me, what minute it was we brought him on an extra time. But then you're saying, like, this is the most high pressure game of your life, of the country's, this uh, generation, multiple generations lives. And we're, we're looking to you to do something. And he's then Jack's like, all right, mate, cheers. You could have given me more than 20 minutes to do this why not bring me yeah i'd so that is uh, that shows a bit of a a bit that's fear i think that's a fearful act by by southgate instead of take it like make it making that change in a time where it can end the game you know so instead of going oh it's ticking towards 90 minutes we either make a bold we, we decision better not here. concede yeah yeah but instead yeah. of being make being bold and going, let's fucking end this now, lads. It's just, it's not going to extra time because we say it isn't because we're going to score. He just goes, oh, we'll just we'll just hold on a bit longer. We'll hold on a bit longer, and then we've got thirty more minutes to maybe hope something happens. That's a little bit fearful in uh, in my eyes, in my opinion, I should say. Yes. So in previous episodes, I apologised to Sterling and I apologised to Southgate for criticising them when, uh, you know, they, they got the results that were necessary. 
Uh, Rio Ferdinand said, what's it going to take for England fans to really get behind Sterling? And I said, well, I'd like for him to play well, actually. And so I had to apologise when he did play well. Raheem Sterling, nowhere to be seen this game. He was about as invisible on this pitch as Harry Kane was. And that was kind of the problem with, with Mason Mount, why Mason Mount had to come off, was because Mason Mount was the player in that forward position who got the ball the most. But because he was essentially up there on his own, he kept giving the ball away. And so Mason Mount appears to be not playing very well because Sterling and Kane aren't doing anything to, you know, to, to help him out. Anyway, we've criticised England for a long time and I'm still angry about it. But let's <laughs> move on to how angry everybody else is about it. Because uh, England fans, Dave, I don't know if you if you're aware of this reputation, but we're not well we're not well loved abroad. No, yes, the uh, I should we should say due to the actions of a minority, but as is always the case in everything negative in the world, the minority are the loudest and most brash and brazen and visible, and therefore reputations are forged based on based on them, rather than the quiet. A majority. Yeah. Yeah. English fans pushed past security to get into the stadium without tickets. Um, English fans assaulted Italian fans after the match. England fans booed the other team's national anthem. England fans booed their own team when they knelt to, uh, to, to take the knee. Uh, England fans subsequently racially abused the three players that came on to take penalties and missed, which, going back to the football, again, terrible choice by Southgate to bring those players on and terrible penalties all around. And to be fair, good work by Jordan Pickford there for what has otherwise been a somewhat cagey tournament for him. He, You could not have asked any more of Pickford in that shootout. No. He almost, he kind of had no right to save that Jorginho one either. Yeah. Like that was yeah. just great homework and he committed to it. Yeah, great save. And he kept yeah. us in it. And for a second again, for a second after he saved that, I was like, maybe it, maybe it can happen. Maybe. Yeah. But yeah, it's, um, yeah, the, I, we, we touched, we touched on it. But yeah, the decision to bring us someone on who's been sat on his ass for an hour, for two hours watching a football match. To then throw him on and then go, okay, in five minutes, you're going to have to take one of the most important penalties of your life. Better not fuck it up. I hope you're ready. I don't know if, I don't know if a player can be expected to do that. If, if that was... Rashford had played for an hour, I think he'd probably score. And if Sancho had played for an hour, I think he'd probably score. It's, yeah, I just, I don't really get, get that um, decision. I think if it gets to 118 minutes and you've got some substitutions to make, you've, you've left it too late. They should have done it earlier. I think yeah. the reason he left it so late is because he couldn't fit them all into the system. So Marcus Rashford ended up playing as right wing back for the last two minutes, just so just so he would be on the pitch. So not only are you trying to, not only is Marcus Rashford's mindset, I'm going on because there's penalty shootout coming and I need to score. He's got to spend two to five minutes out of position, panicking about making sure he doesn't fuck up in defence when he's not a defender by any stretch. But he's seen as the one of the more senior responsible members of the squad. So you go, you do a job, Marcus, because you have the fortitude 
do it. But you know, he's just a guy. He's just a human. Like, and he's. Yeah, I think you're you're putting too much on a person to to expect anything from that. Yes. It's a crazy decision to make. Crazy, crazy decision. And again, if it works, hey, Southgate's a tactical mastermind. Look, he saved all of his penalties to bring players on at the end. But Saka also had the penalty to take, and he missed. If it had just been Sancho and Rashford who had missed, and Saka got that last one, we would have been like, God, that was a dodgy penalty call. Thank God we got through it. Yeah, right. but maybe Saka doesn't miss if... The other two before him don't miss. Well, because well, Saka doesn't miss, does he? He gets saved. Like, again, that's, that's, that's Dormammu being unbelievable. Like, he, like, just as well as Pickford did, Dormammu had an amazing penalty run as well. I guess, yeah. But I think the difference between... Um, I was going to say Dormammu, but I was trying to say his real name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the difference between Donnarumma is that he guessed the right way and the penalties weren't good enough to evade him. Like yeah, Har- yeah, Harry yeah. Kane's penalty, he went the right way, but it was so perfect that even a six foot 20 goalkeeper like him could guess the right way, full stretch and still not get it. It's because the penalty was good enough. Sancho and uh, Saka's penalties just weren't, weren't good enough. So they were the easier saves, whereas Pickford was at full stretch low for the Jorginho one. That was That was a very difficult thing to do even if you guess the right way. Yeah, another big difference between, say, this and American football as well, is you know when uh, you have American football players on the sidelines and, like, the kicker is on the sidelines getting ready to come and take the kick after touchdown and they have a net at the back and they have a little ball and what they do is the kickers sit there and they kick their ball into the net to get their legs ready, to get themselves warmed up, right? Whereas in football, you just do some stretches, you jog on the side of the pitch a bit, you cheer your teammates on, that's your warm-up. If on the side of the pitch we had, or, you know, back in the changing rooms or something, in a small area away from the pitch, you had a goal that they could warm up taking penalties at for 15 minutes before they come on. And you go, right, in the locker room, we've, what we've done, we've set up some turf. We've put AstroTurf in the locker room and we've got a net at the end of it. Now you're going to go back there for 20 minutes and you're, to, you're going to take the same penalty again and again and again. Then you're going to come out here in 20 minutes and that penalty that you've been practicing back there for the last 20, 15, 20 minutes, you're going to come out, you're just going to do it again. You're going to do it one more time. We've got our backup keeper, because uh, he's not doing anything, because Pickford's there. The, ba- the, the, yeah. the, 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 the backup keeper is going to go with you back into the changing rooms, and you are just going to take that penalty again and again and again. And then you're going to come on, and you're going to take it in real life. That's, that's how you're going to do it. Because you're going to be ready, and, yeah. Yeah, and in idea. American football, yeah, that's what they do. They get ready to go and take that high-pressure kick. And you know, and they're 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 ready for it. Whereas in you know, with, with what Southgate did, there was there was uh, there was well, an opportunity. Yeah, yeah, but that's, that's not the way football works. Yeah, which yeah. but I don't understand why it couldn't be. Like it doesn't. You don't even have to be that clandestine about it. Have it back in the changing rooms. I guess that would help because the player would be practicing which side he prefers, left or right. Yeah. And then you could just have yeah, one yeah. of the opposition subs watch it, and then when the penalty shootout comes, they say he seems to prefer to go to the left to the goalie. Yeah. But then Wembley is so the with the, or any stadium that's got like a running track, or but Wembley is so far away from the pitch to the fans that you could just have a goal on the side of the pitch and just yeah do exactly that, have them practicing their pens. But then 
I guess what happens if yeah, it hits the bar and cannons off onto the pitch? And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, then you get all yeah. kinds of like referee, like for goodness sake, will you stop getting the ball onto the pitch? So yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah I, that seems like a great idea. That maybe I don't understand. That could be implemented, maybe yeah. not for twenty minutes, but maybe like yeah, but have something backstage, quote unquote, where the players could properly warm up. And uh, yeah, because it seems like the most of the warm up. There's a funny Lee Evans bit where he says the subs do nothing all game, and then they do a little bit of a stretch on the sideline. The reason they always sprint onto the pitch when they come on is because that's their warm-up. They've done nothing, so they have to just run as fast as they can just to get their muscles going. But, yeah, mentally and physically, I don't see how a player could adapt. Um, the, the, the counterpoint to that is, as a professional footballer, how hard is it to kick a ball 12 yards into a net? And I understand that the human side of it is the 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 event, the scale of it, the pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but they've, they've but... spent the last ten years telling us, oh, and they've been working with sports psychologists to really get them. So when it comes to this moment, the sports psychologist has been preparing them for this moment for the last five years. That's why they won. So okay, well, actually, we shouldn't blame Marcus Rashford for absolutely misplacing that penalty. We should be blaming the sports psychologist that's been getting him ready for it. Because that's the guy who said, now, when you do it, just envision yourself. You're by an ocean, and the fans (laughs) are the waves of the ocean, and the goalkeeper is the water coming towards you, but you can repel that water, Marcus. Just put the ball where you want to go, like a, a ball bobbing on the ocean, they said, and then he hit the fucking post. Yeah. And in a way, like he, that's like his style as well, that stuttery... He doesn't I, even look at the ball. He's looking at the goalie yeah. and he does that. Yeah, so I don't know. A hundred times he could have taken that penalty and he has done for United and he could score 98 of them. And the two, the one of the two that he happens to miss happens to be in the Euro final. It's just this weird <coughs> fluke of statistics that, yeah, could have nothing to do with his psychology or his physical, how warm his muscles is. It could just be something out of this control I don't know who who can say who who can say that's what I guess that's what a penalty shootout is for and that's why when people say that it's been talked about at least by FIFA or UEFA about not having a penalty shootout to be a tiebreaker anymore I'm kind of like no like I, I like how unpredictable and magical and chaotic a penalty shootout is and it it seems right that it is that way because if you can't separate two teams out of a two hours of football, then they've 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 uh, foregone their right to win by fair means, yeah, really. Yeah. And it has to come down to this fluky situation where anything could happen to, in order to separate them because, uh, yeah, eleven against eleven clearly didn't work, and we can't stay here all night waiting for you to fuck someone to fucking score. So yeah. yeah, I as much as it's heartbreaking when you lose, especially on the biggest stage. Penalty shootout is the what is is what it is, and any like as all the pundits said, anyone can miss a penalty. Yeah, anyone can miss a penalty, but that doesn't mean that you forgive them for doing so, and it well, doesn't mean that you forgive Southgate for specifically bringing those players on to do that job, right? 
You, you don't forgive... You don't go, yeah, but anyone can miss a penalty. We lost the Euros finals on penalties, but anyone can miss a penalty. Yeah, granted, Southgate brought three of those five players onto the pitch almost exclusively for that reason. But anyone said, Southgate should be gone. No. I want him gone. I want him out. I want you, you know I don't like him. I want him out. That's it. I'm doing it, Dave. I'm firing Southgate. I'm firing no. Gareth Southgate. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. That's like that's the like the attitude of uh, billionaire owners of clubs who like uh, we want to win the Premier League and the Champions League and like Chelsea finish third in the Premier League but win the Europa League and they're like that's it you're fired. So yeah, what? Yeah, like especially for a team that maybe has not done that for a few years. Like you can't just no. Like uh, Southgate should have the job for as long as he fucking wants to, unless we get knocked out of the group stages of the World Cup. <laughs> then. then <laughs> Then we will. Then we can have this conversation no, again. No, but see, this, no, like this, I think this, I just want no, to say this, this is, you no. can, you can, and you should forgive a player for missing a penalty. And Southgate, as he said himself, he is responsible for the, the choices yeah, he made yeah, and when he brought players on. And he's responsible for picking the five penalty takers based on who's been best in training. That's that's absolutely fine. That's completely on him. But yeah, you forgive a, a young man for missing a penalty in a, in a final every time. No. If he's responsible for it, then how is he responsible for it? When someone says, I'm responsible for something, you do something in reaction to them being responsible. You don't go, yeah, sorry, that was my fault. I'm, I'm responsible for us losing the tournament in the final. That was all on me. And they go, yeah, don't worry about it then. Like, no, 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 no. If you're responsible, then you have to take responsibility and act upon it. That doesn't mean he has to resign. Like, granted, he got us to the final. But okay, Gareth, you've taken responsibility for it. So what? What does that mean, you're responsible for it? What, what does that mean? If it had worked, yeah, all right, whatever, you would have been praised. But we didn't win. So what does that responsibility mean? What does it mean to us as a country for having lost it? That it's your fault. If you say it's your fault, then fine. So what? Well, yeah. So what? What do you want from him and what do you want from this whole situation? He should be fired, mate. He should be gone. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this is the problem with, with Southgate's time as an England manager, right? Is he's got us to the semi-final of the World Cup and the final of the Euros, but each time had the easiest possible stretch to get there. And that's been great for us because it's meant we've been able to see these young players do really well, grow into themselves, grow into the team, be successful. It's given us that hope as a country that, oh, we can do well. You know, we're not, we're not losers in the quarterfinal. We can get to a semifinal. We can get to a final. We can get to the penalty shootout of a final. But the, every time we come up against major opposition, we're not ready for it. We were ready for Germany Great, that's like the highlight of the tournament, that game. But we weren't ready for Croatia when they were at their best, but we were ready at them when they were at their eldest. We weren't ready for Italy, who were the best team of the tournament. But the whole thing we were said was, yeah, but we've got these fast wingers and wingbacks. So they've got the, all their defenders are over 34. 34 and older, their centre-backs, so don't you even bloody worry about it, mate. Sterling and Mountain, Shaw and Walker, Trippier, they're all going to get behind them. But what happens when we get drawn against Argentina in the group stages of the next tournament? What happens if we get drawn against Colombia again in the group stages of the next tournament? We got them in the World Cup, 
That was like a miracle. Are we going to be ready for South Korea? Like, who do we feel confident going against? We didn't feel that confident going against Denmark in the last game. So it's difficult to judge the strength and value of Southgate as a manager because you're judging him against the easy runs to get there, right? The World Cup, we got there until we were stopped by Croatia. Here we got to the final, and that's amazing. But we did have elderly, elderly Croatia. We got stumped by Scotland. We, we got past Germany, and that was a miracle. But then Ukraine, you were like, I don't even know how Ukraine got out of the group stages. Right, and then we get to the final and we have a test. There is a test of our quality. And we don't have it, right? Yeah. I don't I don't get the big deal. Like everything you like you're saying about yeah, we got to the semi-final of the World Cup. Yeah, we got to the final of the Euros, but we lost. So, yeah, there is no but. That those are all great things that far outweigh all of the negatives. Like, sure, we ha- maybe we had an easier run getting to the final, but we started to win those games. Oh, yeah. And, and as, yeah. It, as football can, is shown at any level, anyone can beat anyone. Nothing is guaranteed. Oh, this tournament especially. This tournament especially. So, yeah, no, I don't, I don't accept any negativity around this thing on balance. Uh, under South, especially when you compare Southgate's reign to every other English manager since Sir Alf Ramsey. Like, he's, he's done better than... I don't even know how many people that is. How many managers and how many squads of players has Southgate bettered in the, whatever, how many, five years since he's been manager? Like, he, he should be untouchable, really, in, in, in relation to England's football his, footballing history. And, yeah, who knows what happens at the next World Cup? What would you, if you were going to guess on the success of England at the, at the World Cup? I how, think would you, how would you expect them to do? Given, given that they're, they're always saying, ah, oh, but they're a young team. They're a young team. They're only going to get better, they said at the last tournament and at this tournament. And they'll say at the next tournament. What's great about that is that the next tournament is only 18 months away. Right. So you, and because we had, did have such a young squad... Carl Walker is our oldest player of this squad at 31. You could, barring any injuries, and maybe there were players who were left out because of injuries, you could lift this squad and drop them into Qatar 2022. And they're, yeah. they'll, they'll all still be able to perform. With the, the Italians, might not be in the same position. No, but then again, Bonucci and Chiellini played every, every minute of their knockout games. How many of them went into extra time? Like the final five. did. The, <laughs> yeah. the final did. The, the semi final did. did. They beat uh, Belgium in normal time. They had to go through extra time to beat Austria. Like yeah, so it's like it, this. There's another one of these things that's changed in in football recently. Is that it doesn't matter how old you are. Ronaldo, uh, Goran Pandev, you know yeah. all these other yeah. aging yeah. quote unquote aging players. Luka Modric. Like yeah. it doesn't matter anymore. Like if your combined age of your centre halves is. 70 they were fucking immense they were absolutely immense then there we didn't we didn't have an answer for it because we instead of like you said putting our nimble guys up against uh giving them the ball and go now you run past Chiellini and Bonucci we went hoof up to Harry Kane see how many headers he wins against Chiellini and Bonucci and I like to see the stat of that but I bet it's about one out of the 20 that we attempted 
Well, I mean, you can see that because we didn't have any. We only had two shots on target. Yeah, (laughs) and and Harry, yeah, Harry Kane's most uh, influential part of the game was when he picked up the ball in the centre circle, splayed it out to Kieran Trippier, who crossed the ball to the back post, and Luke Shaw volleys that in. Which was, by the way, we should say that was a really great finish. Like that is not easy to believe. Brilliant to watch it come all the way, keep it low in that tiny gap between Donnarumma and the post. Great finish, but um. I don't know what else I was saying. I also, but I do want to say that the game, prob- it might have not got to penalties anyway if Federico Chiesa didn't go off injured. Because he was mm-hmm. a fucking menace. He it really was. Just ridiculous. And there's that, that really great scuffle he was having with Declan Rice where they were just, tr- Declan Rice just couldn't get it off of him. And then he, Chiesa gets a, gets a run on the defence, gets a really good low left foot shot that just goes wide. And if he had been left to play the rest of the game, I think maybe they would have ended up scoring at least one more before the end of extra time anyway. But we got lucky there. So we, we got unlucky maybe with the penalty shout, we got unlucky with potential red cards that didn't go our way, but things went in our favour as well and it still it still didn't didn't make any difference. So, um, yeah, what we were, were saying about, about Southgate, it seems like... If, like the kind of negativity might be the levy against him is weighed against or measured against the we should be winning everything. Mm-hmm. Like if if England are to win the World Cup and win the Euros, then he's failed. It's like well yeah, like but sure we we got good enough to beat Italy, but that's because Italy were better, and mm-hmm. you know we were we've been second best in a, some of the games and maybe we scraped through, but that's because we can't and probably might never be the best at anything. No, so but if it, we're second best against other teams and scraping through, it's not because of the players we have on the pitch, right? You look at the combined value of our players on the pitch, and granted, oh, the prices are inflated because they play in the Premier League. Yeah, they all play in the Premier League, right? They all play for the best teams. The only two players on the pitch who don't play for someone that was either in the Europa League or the Champions League final, or who just won a major thing, was the two defensive midfielders who were the best, probably two of the best players at the entire tournament. Right? So it's like like Rice and Phillips. It's a real shame, actually, that they're not going to make it through to like the UEFA team, team of the tournament. Because like, they didn't really, they did that amazing job where you don't even really notice them. But there's a reason, that, you know, that we're not conceding goals from open play. And it's just, they, they were just incredible. Like, Phillips, their partnership is a revelation. And what they are doing together is, like, what everyone always hoped that Lampard and Gerrard would be able... Like, you've got these two amazing midfielders. I mean, imagine if they connect and they just... The problem is that they all hated each other. But with, yeah. with, with Rice and Phillips, you can see. And with Stones and Maguire as well. And then you've got, like... Great partnerships around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's like this... If this team of amazing players worth so much money that is utterly... Harry Kane on his own is worth more than £100 million. Like... What does it take to make this team play positive football? And if, the, you know... and it, it's 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 on the manager, right? Like, I suppose it's, it's the it's the manager's respect, role yeah, to get be. them to get this team to do it. You know. Yeah, and um, be, I, what I would love to see is England play first to last minute positive football mm-hmm. and win four three 
Or, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, maybe in a group stage we, we or in a knockout game, maybe we try that against Germany or Spain or Italy, and yeah. we lose, but we go out playing good football. It's like in the Premier League, teams that are hovering around the relegation zone or in the bottom half of the league, but they don't quit playing the football they sh- they want to play, which is expansive and like Leeds, Calvin Phillips's yeah. Leeds, Marco Bielsa, Marcelo Bielsa, like they never stopped playing positive passing attacking football, even if it cost them some results, because that's the the DNA that they want to ingrain. And you ha- if you're going to start doing that, you have to be consistent with it, otherwise it will go away and you will end up falling, reverting back to being negative. And you're right, it does start with the manager, and the manager sometimes needs to have a bit more courage and say, go out and smash them. Like, don't don't be English and be like, if we do this right and we do this right and occasionally go and do that, you know, then we'll, then we'll scrape through. I think England fans such as yourself, if I dare say, might fall in love with Southgate if he goes, you know what, you guys are some of the most talented footballers in the world and some of the most talented footballers of any England generation before you. Go and, talk, like, they talk about bringing joy to the nation with our football do it not just only in your results and how far you can get in tournaments, but in the in the way that you play as well. Like make it exciting. Don't make it English. Well, the, again, that's the thing, right? That's why Southgate was able to receive so much acclaim this tournament was because they played boring, rigid football, but they scraped through each game, right? And like that results-driven, statistics-driven football works as long as you can dominate the game. But that doesn't work when you're against a team that is more dominant than you. And that's, you know, that's kind of... You can play that kind of game against Ukraine, and then it turns on and, you you know, know, the the magic happens. But you can't be hoping to scrape through against Italy. Um, yeah, it's like having clean sheets is all well and good, and that is not easy to do. Yeah. But let's maybe let's see this as um, a stepping stone. Like Southgate's clearly figured out how to defend. Yeah, like right, that, right. that we know how yes. to do. Okay, and that includes the two holding midfielders that you mentioned. They do a great amount of defensive work. Yeah. So that's set. And I feel like yeah. our back, uh, like. Pickford's probably going to be our number one for a while. And whether we play a back four or a back five, I think we all know who that's going to be. And then we yeah. know who our holding midfielders are. So th- that's a unit that you can basically leave untouched in preparation for the next World Cup. Now let's focus on the front players, like you said, and th- we need to get them ticking along because the guys behind them clearly already know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other reason that I'm angry at Southgate is for that thing that I touched upon in the semi-finals episode where I read that Financial Times article that was saying about, um, about Southgate's essay that he, he wrote saying about, you know, how being English is, you know, it's about being, we know we're proud to be English, we're proud to represent England, but we're going to continue to do what is, uh, what is necessary. Being proud of England doesn't mean that we don't critique the things that we see that are wrong. And a lot of pressure that was put on the victory here wasn't just, it's coming home, it's coming home. It's coming home, but it didn't. It was also about proving that Southgate's vision of what England is like is correct. And that's the other reason that I'm so 
angry about all of this is that with the loss came the torrent of racism that wouldn't have been expressed if we had won. Now, that's not to say that those people aren't racist. And that's not to say, oh, well, the England team deserved the racism because they lost the football. But that's, that's obviously, that's not true. But the weight that Southgate put on the team was, the further we go, the more we prove ourselves and our vision of what we are and who we are and representing ourselves, the more we prove that correct. And you can boo us while we take the knee, but that doesn't matter because we're going to play the best football that we can and we're going to represent ourselves along the way. And so that loss hurts because it, the response to that loss was so immediate and so catastrophic as to reveal everything is a lie, Right? And to reveal, or to reveal the vision of England as a lie. And it's stuff that we've spoken about before on this podcast and on other podcasts as well. Where we said after Brexit, you said this on previous ones as well. Where after Brexit, you had to take time to kind of reevaluate what it means to be English after that Brexit vote. Yeah, yeah. And so while I'm saying I'm angry at Gareth Southgate for losing this, it's not Southgate that is the one who was at fault, of course, in this situation. It's those fucking racist cunts. But Southgate allowed that lie to be exposed by losing the match, right? If we, if we win the match, or if, if Saka, Sancho, Rashford score those penalties, all those people who put fucking disgusting monkey chants and monkey emojis onto Saka's Instagram page, all would have been on his Instagram page going, yeah, woo, Saka, hey, England, England. And instead, because we lost and Saka misses the penalty, it turns to racism like that. And that's not Saka's fault. And that's not Southgate's fault. But the lie of who we are as a country is exposed by that loss. And that lie would have been covered up and... If, um, if we had won. And there was something in that article that I, I mentioned during the, the semi-final episode that was saying about France's win in 1998, when France had this multicultural team that won the World Cup in France in 98 with Zidane and Henri and Vieira. And they said the outpouring of being French was a transformational moment for racism within France. And it lasted for no time at all. 2012, London hosts the Olympic Games. The opening games are a display of what it means to be English. We're sp- 2012, the rainbow flags everywhere. Gay marriage is legal now. What an exciting future there is for England. We praise the NHS in the opening ceremony. How's the NHS doing now? Actually, it's not great. Who was the mayor that profited from that future? of an exciting, dynamic, open England. Well, it was actually, it was Boris Johnson was the mayor of London during the London Olympics. And now as a prime minister, he said, oh, the players who were kneeling. And everyone who was profited off that lie 
is now exposed. And this comes back to something that we were saying earlier on, which is about the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of this whole thing. And another Dan Carlin quote that I really enjoyed from that book I was listening to recently was uh, Dan Carlin said, that's the kind of hypocrisy that Genghis Khan could drive a genocide through. And that is largely how I feel about the Conservative Party and this, uh, and this tournament, where they started the tournament by saying, players who kneel are doing gesture politics, says Pretty Patel. Then Pretty Patel wears the England shirt once England get into the semi-finals, gesturing her support for the England team. Then, after they lose, she goes into the House of Commons and says, this kind of racism online is unacceptable. Here is the Conservative Party bill that will ban racism online. And it's like... Genghis Khan could drive a genocide through the hypocrisy of the Conservative Party. It's just unbelievable. For them to be able to say, no, 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 players shouldn't be kneeling, players shouldn't be kneeling... Why are you fans being racist after we've essentially allowed to support your racism? No, no, fans should be allowed to boo in the stadium. Fans should be booing. Fans can boo if they want. What do you mean they're being racist online? You can't have it both ways, right? You can't say we are a free and open, tolerant society, which means we give free speech to anyone to say anything they want. And then also say, I can't believe you said that. (laughs) You can't say... Oh, no, 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 the fans kneeling against racism. They're, sorry, the players kneeling against racism. They're the ones who are being inappropriate. And then go, what are the fans doing being inappropriate against those players? And it, was, it, goes, back to, uh, it goes back to Donald Trump. It goes back to all of this stuff, to, to all of it. And it's once again looking at England, right? And saying... Why are we hated around the world? Why does everyone in Europe want us to lose? Well, it's because of Brexit. So thank you again for that, Boris Johnson. It's because when we go to other countries, we tear shit up. And those same fans that tear shit up, boo the players for kneeling, cheer the players when they score, and then abuse them racistly online when they don't. Yeah, and and that's that's, that's the point. That, that, that That is the... The group of people that were that perpetrate all of this. Yeah, there's the same kind of attitude of yeah, loutish hooliganism abroad and at home, and yeah, feeling like uh, uh, feeling like uh, being pissed off at an England player for missing a penalty is the same as yeah, uh, putting monkey emojis on their Instagram page or defacing a mural of Marcus Rashford with with um with racist yeah. Racist uh, words. That they, they those that that's the kind of mindset of those of that kind of person who thinks those two are akin and justified. And yeah. like I said before, it's they're the loudest people, and that's that is why yeah our reputation is tarnished because uh, sixty thousand people can attend a sporting event and however many thousands of people gathered outside, and if. A hundred people break through barriers to try and break into the stadium, and if a hundred people boo for taking a knee, and if someone mugs a Formula One driver Lando Norris on his way back to his McLaren, like these are all the same kind of same kind of people, not necessarily the same individuals, but that is the the the, the mindset of of that 
that that loutish hooliganistic kind of um point of view which is fucked up because like you say it does expose the lie mm-hmm. of of english patriotism but then there's a there's silver lining that comes afterwards quite often um with with things that are, are deplorable is that the good side of people and the good side of british people in this case can try and pave over these these cracks caused by the 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 noisy minority with like with the the rashford mural so it's very the whatever is, is is defaced of it is very quickly covered up and then also very quickly local people come and start covering up the mural with messages of support and love and mm-hmm. um just great things that far eclipse what was put, negative stuff that was put on there in the first place and that kind of gave me a little bit of hope you know it was it was such a quick reaction um of rage and and vitriol from racist asshole people and you know uh criminals in in defacing public property but then it, that was also very quickly responded to with compassion and love and support and 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 numerically that positivity was greater than the, than the the negativity that that preceded it but the weight of of negativity versus positivity is is debatable and it's hard to know what what hits harder is it the 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 racist graffiti on a mural or is it the positive um response to that to that negativity i don't i don't know which is which is stronger yeah yeah it's tough to say and after the uh, the racism especially against saka i went onto saka's instagram to look at it and he had 68,000 comments and I had to sc- literally scroll down for two minutes before I found the racist, the racism once. Right. So again, it's, it was, it was on the news. It was like, Hey, there are 68,000 racist comments against Saka for missing that, which is not the case. And when I went down and found those, like the monkey emojis and stuff, I clicked on them and they were accounts with zero followers following a hundred people which suggests that either they're bot accounts, right? They're not even, they're not real people because they don't, they don't have friends following them. They don't have family following them. They've got zero followers. Their whole thing is they follow 500 people and then, you know, the bots do, you know, you could easily say, oh, it was the Russians that did it. You know, it's (laughs) like, or it's somebody who has set up an anonymous account in which they are able to be racist, right? It's not people, like, it's not like... uh, your neighbour is using his regular Instagram account to go onto Saka's page and post racist, right? Even the people who are doing it who know that they're wrong because they're an anonymous account. Yeah, they're protecting themselves. So they clearly know that there's a difference between amorality and immorality. Yeah, and right, people who right. know that it's a, an immoral, abhorrent thing to do. So they hide themselves behind a veil of anonymity instead of being like, no, this is how I feel and this is how i wish to express myself and you can come and find me if you want because i stand by what i mean it's cowardly little cretinous trolls yeah 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 you can say that online right you you can use that as an excuse but when you get to things like the mural you can't and it only takes one person to go up there and deface the mural Right. That's the thing. It takes one person or a group, you know, a group of teenagers to be like fucking Rashford missing that penalty. We're, that's the, the murals up the road. Let's go. Yeah, that'll get him back. He missed it for our country. We're going to go get rid of that thing of his giant face. Like you. But again, 
it's that thing of our country is both Southgate's view of what the country can be and England is Boris Johnson's enablement of that kind of hate. The Boris Johnson and Priti Patel's encouragement of what this country is as well. And, you know, we saw it with Trump. We see it here. But England fans, England fans. And that's why we're not allowed to have flags outside our houses. <laughs> right? It's why people don't want to put the England flag outside their house during tournaments. And... Um, yeah, because you're seen as being... Uh, it's racist to put up a, a, a St. George's Cross, but not to put up a Union Jack, because it's, you know, yeah. it's inclusive of, of, of the whole of the UK. Um, as, a, as a weird aside, I used to work with a guy who um, seemed fairly normal, but he had a tattoo on his arm of uh, what was clearly meant to be the British Isles, but he, it was purposefully omitting the rest of the... The rest of the United Kingdom, so it was only the the geographical outline of England, right? And then it was filled in with the St George's Cross. And I I asked him, I was like, oh, what? How come you just gone for the England and not British? He's like, well, I'm not fucking British. I'm English. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of a guy with um, you would you would see him as being a bit more of a sort of a grungy, uh, sort of type guy, um, not like a that your typical stereotypical hooligan type, but he was. Um, overtly, aggressively patriotic to the point where he hated the rest of the of Britain, and it's just I just don't I don't get I don't get that. That's the same kind of mentality, isn't it? It's just like I don't, I don't care what similarities we we may have. If you're not me and the people that I identify with, then fuck you. Yeah, I think that's another different, difficult part about being English during this tournament as well is that we've seen. Wales and Scotland play and we wanted Wales and Scotland to do well right we, we want the British teams to do well definitely and then and then what was the why like why did we kind of go no let's fucking destroy Scotland in this game well, it's because the Scottish like hated us <laughs> <laughs> and it was like oh my god and I think it's a thing with being English is recognizing that every essentially everybody in the world hates you Everybody in Europe hates you, and now you also have to hate yourself. And the only people you're not allowed to hate are the ones who miss the penalties, and that causes a difficult set of rules <laughs> as well, doesn't it? So, uh, yeah, those players have been have been through a ridiculous test. Yeah, and again, to have to represent the country. I mean, that's not to say that other countries aren't like this, but I'll le- I'll leave this as a final thing as we kind of come towards the end. Um, as soon as this ended, Boris Johnson was there saying, we should be hosting the 2030 World Cup. We think England and the British Isles has a strong case to host the, uh, the World Cup in 2030. And immediately, I think it was Anton Ferdinand, actually, who famously faced racism in his playing career, um, said, if we can't get racism in order in this country, we shouldn't be allowed to host the 2030 World Cup. And that causes quite a difficult discussion because what does that mean, firstly, if we can't get our house in order, right? In 
how do you qualify when the country is suitably non-racist and therefore able to host the World Cup? Are countries like Russia and Qatar morally superior to us because their fans don't expose their own players to racism online? Are we okay with allowing Russia and Qatar to host the World Cup, but we're not? And if FIFA were to say that, what would that mean? If FIFA was to say, no, the racism expressed by England fans is so great that we're not going to allow you to host the 2030 World Cup. What does that mean for us in comparison to the morality of Russia and Qatar? I guess it would, I guess it would be if they then retroactively went... And because we've come to this decision now, we look back on the, some of our decisions in the past and think maybe we shouldn't have offered, given the World Cup to Russia and Qatar. Or if they, whether they don't, if they don't acknowledge the past at all, then yeah, yeah then that's an issue. Yeah. And what if they decide to give it to China? What if they say, yeah, I know that you've got literal genocide, but the England fans are being racist online. And so we can't, this kind of goes back to our discussion about Hungary and the, and the flags, right? Should Hungary be allowed to host another game at the Euros, considering how the fans acted in homo- with rampant homophobia, homophobia in Hungary? Should they be allowed to host it again? Should England? And to my mind, the only way is to anyone who bans another team's national anthem, because that's fucking disgusting on its own. How insanely disrespectful for countries to come to your stadium to play you and then boo their national anthem. That's just, that's gross on its own. But to go, to be an England fan and go and watch England play, you have to be a part of the members club, right? The England members club. Something you can't just buy a ticket, I think. Is that right? I think you have to sign up with UEFA if it's, uh, for example, if it's a European government thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they, you should never be allowed to go and see another international game. Straight up. Like, like, there's there's no doubt. Shouldn't be allowed to go and see another football game. Ever. But then how do you, like, how do you police that? You'd need, like, some super sci-fi... Big Brother style CCTV yeah, well. where every single person's face is monitored and if they're booing during a national anthem of the opposing team, that's it. Struck off, you're never yeah. coming again. Yeah. If that's the good si- news about doing it in China, Dave. Do it in China, they'll they'll get everyone catalogued for you. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, yeah, racism is not an English problem, it's a human problem. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. to to eliminate Entire countries or stadiums or teams based on home racism or discord, then you might as well just stop football altogether. Or any yeah. any international sporting event just can't take place because every country is fucked up and every yeah, yeah that's 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 the truth of it. And I, I'm very I've been I am often and I think I probably have been on this podcast very down on human beings as a species. But yeah, I just think that the whole planet is full of uh, 
I don't even know how to, no, how to, the, the, how to articulate you know, it anymore, to be honest. Do you know, the, the only country that's come out of this smelling like roses is the mayor of Munich and Germany. <laughs> and that's it. And that's, you know, kind of exactly what we, uh, exactly what we were talking about in that episode. Yeah, the only way you come out smelling of roses is if you manipulate the system to uh, make you look good. Yeah. I don't know if we should allow ourselves to host the next the World Cup in 2030. I don't know. Not well, that it would make much of a difference to us. No, right? but it's different if, if we apply and FIFA say no for whatever of these reasons. But then if the English FA or the English government go you know what, we are not going to bid because we feel like we have inherently oh, ingrained social yeah. problems that we need yes. to fix as a country before we are going to put ourselves on that global stage. Because yeah. it won't look good. Like if, if England hosted the World Cup and then, because the abuse against, racial, um, against England players online is huge news in England, probably yeah. not as big news as the rest of the world. But if we are hosting a World Cup and... English players are getting abused online. Probably foreign players are going to get abuse online as well. Then that does shine a spotlight that the entire planet will see. And then we as a nation look like the loutish hooligans who go smash up restaurants and pubs in uh, in foreign countries during tournaments because we're all the, basically all the same as far as the world's concerned. Yeah. Imagine if we host the World Cup and then you boo every country that comes to play. Why would you even bother going as another country? If you're Brazil and you've flown all the way to Brazil and they play the Brazilian national anthem and the English fans boo you the entire way through, why would you even... Every time England go and play abroad now, when they go and play in Germany, the German fans are going to boo them. When they go and play in Croatia, the Croatian fans are going to boo them. When they go play in Denmark, we booed Denmark during the Danish national anthem. Denmark, Dave, the team of the tournament. Those same fans who three weeks before had been like, Christian Eriksen is such a great player and I can't believe that this has happened to football. Boo the country that he plays for. If Eriksen had been there, they would have been booing him. They'll boo bloody anything. It's, it's just an, uh, a very easy way of voicing yourself isn't it it's just a, a sound you make that everyone can join in on and it's just this weird communal yeah. catching infectious thing isn't it because i'm not sure i don't think it's a case of booing a national anthem isn't meant to be hateful i don't think i think it's just some childish um you know they're they're the opposition so let's just get let's just fuck with their national anthem because it's annoying i don't feel like Many people are like booing, yeah. going, yeah, fuck these guys, they're scum, fucking kill them. I think they're just like, ah, you suck, boo, hiss. And like when the yeah. goal leaguers take a goal kick and they go, ah, you fat bastard. It's just like yeah. some stupid, some stupid, um, what's the word I'm looking for, sort of tribal rallying call, I think. But it's still disrespectful and I'd rather, of course, I'd rather it, it didn't happen. I think it should be, sport should be a celebration. Like if you watch, yes. if you watch rugby, no one's booing the national anthem in rugby. No, no, no one's, one's booing them in cricket. No one's no one's at Wimbledon booing them. No one boos the opposing Danish snooker player. When the darts teams come on, no one boos the Irish darts player. Yeah, I guess I guess that's the thing is that no one um, boos the hockey team. 
<laughs> yeah. When the, the basketball teams team. come on, yeah. When the when the basketball team comes on, nobody's booing them. I guess yeah. I think the thing with football is proportionately, football has the largest proportion of dickhead fans of any sport <laughs> yeah. in the, in in the whole world. Of of any sport, I think there are more dickheads who go to football games than there are who go to anything else. And yeah, it's just it's a shame because it's still a proportion. It's still a minority, but. As I keep saying, minorities are louder than majorities. I don't know what, especially if it's a negative minor. Well, only if it's a negative minority are they louder than the uh, the quiet, respectful majority. Well, it's been nine years since the Olympics, and this is the first major sporting tournament that we've held in the country since then. And that's nine years where the country has gone from probably its pinnacle, I would say, of cultural power where other countries had union jacks on their mopeds or people would look at England and be like this is a progressive forward-thinking country that's working towards something right maybe it hasn't reached gender equality racial equality sexual equality but it's moving in that way and it's proud to do so and nine years later it's like we've fallen off a cliff. Yeah, because of I think because it's because of, the, of football fans. Because well, I think at the Olympics, of, no I one was booing the opposite the national anthems at the Olympics, were they? No, no one was racially abusing Olympians on social media. No, but the person who led both of those events is the same man, and if you hear the mayor of London talking about the Olympics and talking about people in 2012 and you hear him talking about people now, it's a very different scenario. And, um, yeah, the country has to take a good, strong look at itself and go, what the hell happened to us over the last 10 years? And Boris Johnson has got to carry a lot of responsibility because he might not be a racist football fan, but he's an enabler and an encourager. And... Oh, women in burkas look like letterboxes. Isn't that fun? It's like a, a Top Gear joke. Yeah, Jeremy Clarkson can get up on that fucking bandwagon as well. Well, Dave. This is the last episode of the Euros. And <coughs> we've ended on a very England note. Which is fair, England got, got to the final. But forgetting this final match... The whole way through the tournament, we were saying, this tournament's been unbelievable. What a tournament this has been. The group stages were incredible. The round of 16 was some of the best football that we've, you know, that we've seen. This Den- the Danish story, this is the story of Denmark to lose your player like that, to lose your first two games and then get to the semi-final. France going out... Italy versus Belgium in the quarterfinal, like that could have been the, literally could have been the final and we got it so early on. What a tournament it was. And it's a shame that it has to leave such a sour taste in our mouths now at this point. Because it was an incredible month for me and I'm going to miss it every day from now until forever. Yeah, that was the weird thing about yesterday being Monday after the final is that it was like, okay, well, what do, what do I do now? 
Yeah. What do I do with my evenings? Yeah, and before that, it was when you were staying around with me, it was, well, we've got the morning and then the game, the football starts at two. So then there's the rest of our day sorted. So yeah, it's weird to try and think of what to do with, with, um, with our days now because I'm not working and, you know, so I've got to fill my own time. Um, I, I kind of, I wish this tournament had ended at the semi-finals now, to be uh-huh. honest. Yeah. I think that was the last thing I remember kind of enjoying. And not necessarily because of the football, because, you know, a football match is a football match and, it, you know, whatever happens, happens. And it's out of out of my control. So I, I ever I never was really emotionally invested in it. So I mean, when you, you messaged me after the final saying you were so angry yeah. and, I, and I said, I envy your passion because... I was never emotionally invested enough to be heartbroken by it, to be angry about it. You know, it just, it wasn't, it didn't matter enough to me for me to have any kind of emotional reaction. And I think that's just dissipated as the tournament's gone on. It's been less and less exciting for me. And I don't know, I don't know why, I don't know why that is, but... Um, it's because I left. Yeah, I think that was a big, <laughs> that's definitely a big part of it, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, so there were some amazing games of football and some amazing moments and there was plenty of controversy and uh, external to football kind of things to talk about, which some of and some of it was um, exciting and added added to the, the spectacle of it. And a lot of it was detracting and and negative, which is a shame. But that, you know, sadly, that's kind of to be expected. Um, but yeah, I guess all because of what has happened since Sunday night. Mm-hmm. it has left a sour taste and I have I am I don't know yeah kind of glad that it's over because maybe things will quieten down in the country now and hopefully the the, the public health fallout won't be this, another thing for us just to get stressed and worried about now because of decisions made by you know the people that, who shouldn't be making those kind of decisions I suppose but you know, I don't want to end on a complete downer, you know, because a lot of it was great. So much of it was great. And this is kind of, uh, this actually falls into my whole kind of ethos is that the stuff that was bad is really hard to ignore and it's upsetting. But there was so much that was good. Like so numerically, way more good stuff happened and exciting stuff happened. And it was a spectacle and a festival of football for a long time. So it's a sad thing about living in the modern world that we have to really focus on the positive in order to enjoy things because the negative stuff is so in your face and so loud. Yeah, well, let me go and get my wall chart that I've been diligently falling in, uh, filling in, sorry. Well, falling. I've been, I've been a fool the entire way. I've been <laughs> filling in my wall chart. And what I did is I put an asterisk next to every game I thought was incredible. So now we'll get it and we have a chance to... Think back on those memories of what was an incredible tournament. Okay, that item okay. piece is a good time. Yeah, yeah, okay, let's go. So, here we go. Memories of the tournament. Group A. Of course, we opened and closed with the remote control car. I don't know if you noticed, though, Dave, the remote control car for the final had a rainbow flag on it. Oh, I did notice. VW... Only progressive when, uh, when it's profitable to do so. But <laughs> Italy v Turkey, the 3-0 opening game. Italy looked strong. 
that from from the beginning. You know, they they pretty much dominated that group the whole way through. Switzerland, again, we weren't sure what they were going to do, but they delivered hugely as the tournament went on. Group B, Denmark, Finland, Belgium, Russia. Belgium come out of the gate with a 3-0 drubbing of Russia. Denmark against Finland, of course. Um, the moment that we were both literally in tears with, uh, yeah. with Christian Eriksen. Um, but then I think the, the two defining games of that group was Belgium-Denmark and then Denmark-Russia, which both have asterisks next to them. Um, Belgium-Denmark, where Denmark scored almost immediately and then just played unbelievable football for the first half, really. The first 30 minutes, 45 minutes, just dominated that game completely. Belgium was shell-shocked. Big time, yeah. Yeah. And then um, Denmark, Russia, where it wasn't, it didn't look like Denmark were going to be able to get through because they just lost both of their previous games. They were bottom of the table. The only way they could get through was to absolutely destroy Russia. So uh, they they won four one and they got through. <laughs> they did it. Yeah, and yeah. they were helped out by uh, Denmark uh, beating Finland, but very late, very late on. Yeah, that was a really really incredible game. Um, Group C. Austria, Netherlands, Ukraine, North Macedonia, boys. <laughs> Your boys. They were a real highlight, I thought, of this tournament. And it's crazy to think that that was also from this tournament because it feels like so long ago. It now, does, at this yeah. Point. But yeah, Goran Pandev and the North Macedonians putting up a hell of a display, I thought. Yeah, they they definitely we spoke about it at the time, but they definitely did their country proud. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got an asterisk here by the Netherlands versus Ukraine, which was the the, the their first game, both of their teams' first games. Um, it's a three-two win for the Netherlands again because we've watched so many games at this point. I don't remember exactly what happened there, but <laughs> don't you? No, do you? Yeah, well, yeah, I remember it because we were watching that one together and it was a nil-nil for a long time and it wasn't until the 52nd minute where Netherlands finally scored and then scored again really quickly. Yeah. Um, and it was looking like they were going to just walk away with it, but then Ukraine yeah. came back and scored two in yeah. the 75th and the 79th minute and we were celebrating, like, get in there, Ukraine, like it was a great turnaround. But then yeah. Netherlands sn- uh, snatched it right at the end. Denzel Dumfries... Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that was a that was a really exciting game. Yeah, Probably one of the freeze. most exciting yeah. up until that point. Yeah, going over to Group D: England, Croatia, Scotland, Czech Republic. Virtually no exciting games from England at this point in in the group stages. I don't think I've don't got. Think a, Sorry, go on. I was going to say I've got a little note here by England Scotland. Uh, it says worst game ever. <laughs> Next to it. But the Czech Republic did amazingly in those group stages. I was going to say that there weren't actually the, any good games of football in that group, I don't no. think. Um, the best, the most you could say is that the Czech Republic's game against Scotland, where the Schick scored from 50 yards and yeah. and then with another, with a really great header, that was probably the the highlight of, of the whole group, really. It wasn't, wasn't all that interesting. Yeah. I've got Group E. There's no asterisks here either. Uh, Poland, Slovakia, Spain and Sweden. Spain beat Slovakia 5-0. 
And um, after that, I kind of said that was the most boring 5-0 win I've ever seen. Where <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't that Spain were good. It was that Slovakia just kind of collapsed, which was kind of crazy because they beat Poland. They played well against Sweden and then just just couldn't, couldn't keep it up. Um, Sweden beating Poland 3-2 to, uh, to send Poland out of the tournament, I guess, yeah. at that point. But famously, Dave, the group of F. Lattes for everyone. <laughs> that intern. I wish we could find out his, their, their name so we could send them a latte yeah. ourselves. Yeah. France, Germany, Portugal, Hungary. I mean, this had some incredible games in it. It wasn't just that the group was tough, but some of the games here were unbelievably good. There were some some uh, classics in this year for sure. Yeah, with Hungary holding Portugal to nil nil until the 80th minute, and then Ronaldo suddenly turning on and scoring two goals, and then Portugal come away with that three nil after you know Hungary hold them the whole game. Uh, Germany v Portugal, Germany win four two. Hi boys, we're here. <laughs> um, but again. The Germany winning 4-2 because Portugal scored two own goals. Uh, a crazy, crazy match. And then possibly, uh, definitely in contention for the best night of football of the entire tournament. Uh, Portugal, France, Germany, Hungary. Where through that entire night, the table, every possible combination of that table was explored at some point throughout those games. Yeah, absolutely. That that was a really exciting. That was one of the uh, the few games, a few days of the tournament where you couldn't decide which game to watch, and then whatever game you were watching, it was constantly flashing to the uh, the corresponding game because the yeah, things were moving around so much. At one point, we thought Hungary maybe we were even going to make it through, yeah. but uh, yeah, Germany breaking their hearts again right at the death in the eighty fourth minute. Um, but yeah, that was. I guess the three teams that you expect to go through went through, but they all had to fight for it. It was not a walk for any of them. Yeah, at some time in that night, Portugal were first in the group, second in the group, third in the group, and fourth in the group. Like, that's how crazy it was. I think they ended third in the group, didn't they? Was they, they, they did, went yeah. through to the next round, yeah. Which brings us to the last 16. I've got an asterisk next to Wales, Denmark. Wales, they, they got out, but then Casper uh, and the boys... Just dominated completely a four 0 victory. Yeah, there. yeah. It, it never really um, was in doubt, to and which was a shame because I thought Wales were maybe going to repeat their heroics from twenty sixteen, but yeah, they just didn't. They couldn't match what uh, Denmark brought, no. both footballing wise and and in terms of their spirit. So it's a shame. It's a shame that Wales came up against Denmark really, but you know Denmark deserved it big time. Yeah, smashed absolutely. them. They they did. I've got an asterisk next to Italy-Austria, which was a 2-1 win for Italy in extra time. Um, a lot of tension there. That was a, a, another game in Wembley. The Czech Republic beat the Netherlands in an up 2-0 upset in Budapest. Just crazy. Um, Belgium beat Portugal 1-0, which I have a little note here that says, Ronaldo didn't get his record. Ronaldo was one goal off becoming the highest international goal scorer of all time or something like that. And uh, all he had to do was score a goal, and he didn't. Not yet. I mean, it's going to happen. I mean, it's going to. It's going to. (laughs) Yeah. But that was was a kind of a a crazy night for Belgium. Uh, Then I have a giant circle around two games here 
for what a night. Croatia, Spain, France, Switzerland. Uh, Croatia, Spain goes into extra time. Uh, the last 10 minutes are crazy. And then in extra time, Spain win 5-3. That was 10 goals in two games for them. Just ridiculous. Yeah, with the, that goal from the world's most overrated striker, <laughs> Alvaro Morata, yeah. which made me kind of scruff, squinch up my face. Like, oh, fuck, I'm just fucking fuck, fuck, shit. Fuck. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, that, the, the, last 10, the last 15 minutes were crazy. With Spain going, uh, what, 3-1 up in the 77th minute and then Croatia getting two yeah. in the last five minutes to equalise before to get extra time. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. And then France, Switzerland. Oh, oh! What what a shocker! Oh, it that was incredible. Pogba, amazing goal in that game. Oh, yeah. Uh, France, France actually, well, the first half was an absolute travesty, and then the beginning of their second half was unparalleled. But Switzerland never gave up, and they came through. They uh, they came through to win it, which was yeah, yeah. same as Croatia. Really, Croatia. two goals in the last. 10 minutes to draw it to draw it equal yeah. and then but then scored all five of their penalties to yeah. see them through yeah that's why this one's got a giant circle that has an Owen Wilson wow around wow. it so yeah that's really great Kylian Mbappe wow wow oh not not for Mbappe he didn't get a goal all tournament did he no that's a no, negative and... wow for Mbappe <laughs> <laughs> wow England two Germany, fucking nil, mate. <laughs> I've got a love heart on this one. Again, seems like a long time ago now when we were, it we were riding on a cloud of, of, of English pride, but yeah. it's been expunged slightly since then. Yeah, it has, yeah. That was a big one, though, and we said at the time we could feel happy and proud because we got the second goal. Harry Kane got his goal. And yeah. it being 2-0 and Harry Kane getting the goal meant, oh my God, England can score goals. What? Didn't last for very long. It lasted into the next game, but not, not beyond that one. But that was a great game. That was the highlight of the tournament for being English, probably. Um, more so than the, the semi-final, even though, uh, yeah, we, we dominated that game. Um, and then the next game, Ukraine-Sweden. Extra time. Ukraine beat Sweden 2-1. Yeah, big, get another, big another surprise, yeah. And yeah. to score in the injury time of extra time to win it was that's dramatic. That was a good, that was a big moment in the tournament. Yeah. The quarterfinals, a crazy penalty shootout between Switzerland and Spain where nobody can put it in the back of the net, but Spain go through. Spain very 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 weak from the penalty spot. It's a shame that England didn't uh, didn't learn something from them there, but a real well, they were they were bad, weren't they? In um, and I think they missed one in open play as well at some point. Um, yeah. Maybe they were lucky that they got their goals an extra time against Croatia. Did not get there, but they still they scored three of their five penalties. It was uh, Switzerland who only scored their first one and missed three in a row, which kind yeah. of did them in. That's heartbreaking. Uh, Italy, Belgium. The game was eh. Italy went through. That's pretty much it. Uh, I called Czech- it. I just want to say yeah. that I I really thought Italy were going to win that, and they did. <laughs> and you, were, you were right. I was right about something. Unfortunately, damn you, Dave. Uh, Denmark beat the Czech Republic 2 1 to go through. Good game. But England 4, Ukraine 0. I've got an asterisk here that says, What a game. Glory to the heroes. Yeah, so you said goodbye to the, your heroes. And 
there, but at least it was a good game of football. Yeah, well, I said goodbye to those heroes, and then in the next round, I had to say goodbye to another set of heroes as England beat Denmark 2-1. A great display there by by Denmark. It was a a shame to see them go out, but, you know. In retrospect now, I wonder if I would have preferred if England lost in the semi-final now. Yeah, if we lost to Denmark, we would have felt less bad about it. We would have felt okay, yeah. Then I would have been rooting probably stronger for Denmark in the final than I was for England, weirdly. I don't know why. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think England deserved to win there. And Kane gets gets another goal and we got to see a great free kick. We hadn't seen a single direct free kick scored in the whole tournament up until that point. And it was a right peach. I thought some of the criticism of Pickford was a bit harsh around that goal. I think it was just a really perfectly struck free kick, really. If it goes over over the wall... Pickford concedes two free kicks in two games back-to-back. That's something... Do you think that's something to be a little bit... A little bit... uh, What do you mean? Didn't he concede the free kick against Italy? Was it a free kick or was it a corner? But it was... Oh, um, he, yeah, he saved yeah, yeah. He saved the initial header from the from the cross and yes. onto the post and then Bonucci tapped it in. So that was that's not really his fault. Um, but no, I, I don't blame him at all. I think if you can hit a free kick up and over the wall and back down again, yeah. you just have to hold your hand up because the wall is there to, to, to block, to save, uh, sorry, to defend one side of the goal and the goalie stands on the other side so that there's the, there's the options to the, to the uh, guy striking the ball. Either you get it up and over the wall, which is not easy, or you you know, hit at the goalie side and hope he fluffs it. And he, but he didn't. He got it up and over, which is yeah, yeah impressive, especially for him as at the age he was. Damsgaard. Oh yeah, Damsgaard, just incredible. Yeah, one and of the players to come of the on as, sure. to come on. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Maybe the player of the tournament, considering he came on to replace Christian Eriksen, and what an unbelievable job he did. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk. I want to get onto the players of the tournament after okay. we talk about this. But yeah, it's just, it's a shame that he was. He didn't come out on top of that one, really. Yeah. Italy-Spain, uh, boring game. Italy win on penalties, one all. And then, uh, speaking of Italy winning one all and then uh, going through to penalties, Italy-England, where we had a glorious 30 minutes at the beginning of the game. Um, and now it's 55 years of hurt. 55 years of hurt. And counting. And counting. The players of the tournament. Yeah. The Dark Lord of the Dark Dimension, Dormammu, won player of the tournament. Yeah. I think it's somewhat unfair considering that he's an omnipotent being and intends <laughs> to enslave and destroy humanity. Um, I, d- I don't from, fucking buy from that the, at all. From the, from the very beginning, we said that he w- was doing an incredible job here. And I think the reason he gets it is because he she saves three, he saves those penalties. Yeah, I, I don't final. like that. I really don't like that. Where to, just because it's the most the most recent thing that he's done that it goes in his favour. No, but I, right, okay. So he gets a clean sheet against Turkey. He gets uh, he gets the clean sheet against Switzerland. He gets the clean sheet against Wales. He concedes against Austria. He saves the penalty that Lukaku takes in their match because the reason Belgium didn't go to 2-2 is because uh, Lukaku's penalty was, was missed or saved. He wins a penalty shootout against Spain in the semi-final and then a penalty shootout in the final. If he's your keeper, you have to kind of be like, holy cannoli. <laughs> 
I guess. All right, you make a pretty good case. That's of his attitude, I think, in the semi-final. Yeah. But um, yeah, no. To be fair, he was really good. But I think like maybe maybe we are prejudiced. Not prejudiced. Maybe we are. Um, we do have favourites, and I was thinking, like, if you're going to pick a goalkeeper from this tournament, why not you? Why don't you pick Kasper Schmeichel? And I know uh, yeah, that you got damn right. Yeah, and, but then I guess you're right. It's the final, and they always the the player of the tournament always goes to someone who's in the final, whether it's yes. the losing captain like Modric at the World Cup or or, or Messi whatever. in the previous year. Yeah, or Messi. So I don't know. Are the player of the tournament. I, I mean, probably, okay, I will concede that goalkeeper of the tournament is between, he probably just pips Casper. Fair uh-huh. enough. And, and well, he, gets, he literally picks, pips him by a round. By a like, round, you know, yeah. And, and, and the Denmark fact... lost two goals, uh, two, two games at the beginning of the tournament. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, so fair enough. And I've been looking at the, the UEFA team of the tournament and the Guardians team of the tournament, and they, they both picked uh, Donnarumma. So, all right. Okay, fine. Let him have it. <laughs> okay. But who then, is, who's your player of the tournament? My player of the tournament? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Who would be your England player of the tournament? Um, it would be... Calvin Phillips, Luke Ooh. Shaw... Not yeah, those two over Raheem Sterling. Although I do think he was he was one of our better players. Um, I'd like to pick our a whole back f- five yeah. really. Yeah, but yeah. um, yeah, one of one of those two, I suppose. How about you? Yeah, I think Luke Shaw is probably my my player of the tournament. Yeah, my yeah. For, for England, just because the amount he did was just kind of was unparalleled, and okay. yeah. And it, I didn't feel like that thing with Raheem Sterling, whereas if you had replaced Raheem Sterling, could somebody else have done more? If, you know, as we spoke about before. Like Raheem Sterling statistically, which is what Southgate loves anyway, is the statistics. But statistically, Sterling played probably the best as an England player. But watching Sterling play was very frustrating for me. Whereas yeah. if you replace Sterling with Grealish, for example, maybe Grealish could make more happen. Maybe he doesn't. Um... But you you replace Shaw, and the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, you only replace Shaw with Trippier to counteract a particular, yeah, um, a particular opposition threat. threat. Yeah, yeah. And then we had uh, Ben Chilwell, who was our backup. We didn't see a minute of of game yeah. time. So uh, yeah, I think he um, I could definitely definitely make a case for Luke Shaw there. Uh, yeah. Do you know who uh, got young player of the tournament? No, who was it? It was Pedri. The Spain midfielder, right? Which I is his. I've actually been really impressed with him, and he played. He's eighteen years old, and he played. I think nearly every. I think he played every game, and he was very composed and cultured. He looked like he belonged in that midfield. So I get that. Um, I've yeah. Is this is who I wonder whether it would have been a night? Uh, it would have been justified giving it to Damsgaard. Yeah, for me, he was the the player, the young player. I was like, oh my god, who is this guy? Yeah. And so it's a bit of a shame, especially after everything that Denmark went through. But maybe you're not supposed to, you know, give uh-huh. favours. Um, or, or I don't know if there's like an age to, uh, restriction because he's 21 and Pedri's 18. Okay. I don't know. But um, yeah, so it would have been a bit of a... It would have, I think it would have been nice to give a damn's guard. Um, and I, both of them are just as worthy, I would have I would have said. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, do you want to go through the, the, the UEFA team of the tournament? And you can let me know what you think. Yeah, I've, tra- I've, I've seen it. So okay. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go while I've got thoughts. All right. So we've, we've already mentioned Donnarumma goalkeeper. Yeah. Fine. They've gone for a back four. Yeah. Of, and the first one that no one will argue with, I don't think, unless Spinazzola. you're a massive yeah. Luke Shaw fan. Spinazzola, yeah, left yeah. back, absolutely. Um, Kyle Walker at right back, which, I mean, um, I personally think defensively he was brilliant. Like, and yes. we would have suffered without him, absolutely. Yes. But his his forward play let him down a little bit in his yes. his um, his passing and his ball retention. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I wouldn't put him as my right back in this list because in a in a four at the back as a right back, he was dodgy. However, as the person on the right at three in the back, he was unbeatable. Yeah. And that's kind of the difficult thing. Like, I would quite happily have move him in the middle and then stick Luke Shaw out on the right for this team. Just because <laughs> we've got two left backs doesn't mean they don't deserve to be players of the tournament. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so uh, then the UEFA have gone for uh, Harry Maguire and Bonucci at the uh, centre halves. And I guess in terms of the, the best defenders in the tournament, you can't really. Well, because really Harry Maguire that. didn't turn up. Until the last 16. That seems somewhat unfair. I suppose, yeah. He's played less minutes, but he, his he influence... He's played four and games, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a fair point. I mean, the, the Guardian went for Kyle Walker and Luke Shaw, but then they went for Bonucci and Chiellini as... Yeah, that seems... Yeah, that's... And like, if you're picking an effective defensive unit, you probably would definitely pick those yeah, two because yes. they're, yeah. they're, they're, their bromance is, is kind of adorable. Um, and yeah. obviously their team, uh, as a team unit, they are basically impenetrable, as we've, yeah. as we've seen. Yeah, um, who have we got in midfield? Midfield, they've gone for, what sort of system are they going for? I think they've gone for a 4-3-3 with okay. uh, Hoybjerg, the uh, Danish holding midfielder, alongside yeah. Jorginho of Italy and Pedri of Spain. Okay, well Pedri gets the young player of the tournament, so I guess he has to be in there, doesn't he? Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, yeah. Jorginho, oh yeah, they won the tournament, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think he was really good, but I don't yeah. know. I think if I, if I really looked back, I think he maybe pick some better midfielders. Yeah. Um, he, but he was so tenacious and he made things happen for the team. He kept them ticking. Probably should have got a red card in the final, but yeah. But who's to say? <laughs> who's to say? And yeah, like you say, Pedro's got to go. Hoiberg is a nice addition because I think he was really good. But then you're kind of, that means you're omitting... Declan Rice, Calvin Phillips, I think they were better in that position. Uh, but maybe yeah. maybe we're biased. Um, but uh, yeah, the Guardian did a similar thing with Pedri and Jorginho, but they picked Calvin Phillips ahead of okay. uh, ahead of Hoiberg. Um, and then they've gone for a front three of maybe somewhat controversially Chiesa, which I wouldn't argue with. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was yeah unbelievable. I don't think he even started the tournament as their preferred choice, but he mm. quickly solidified that. Uh, Raheem Sterling on the other side, which again, like it's nice to see him there, but I don't think he was one of the th- two best wide attacking players in the tournament by by any means. Uh, and then they're gone as Lukaku as their centre forward. That's a weird call. It is a weird call because, I mean, he's great. He's a world-class striker, but he definitely didn't show his best in this tournament, especially the longer it went on. 
he scored yes. a few goals in the beginning, but um, yeah, I feel maybe that's uh, if you're picking a front three, that's a pretty deadly front three. But I don't necessarily think he deserves it. No, who's in the Guardian one? They put Patrick Schick as their centre forward. Well, that seems fair. He scored more goals than Lukaku. He did, and no one expected him to. He scored five goals that equaled Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah, yet, Cristiano Ronaldo only gets the golden boot because Ronaldo got an assist as well. Okay. Um, so why is yeah. Ronaldo not in that front three? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to pick the best players, so it's Ronaldo. it should be Schick, Ronaldo, and Chiesa. Would you still Chiesa. pick Chiesa? Yeah, I guess so. Well, they did the Guardian. Let's see. Either the Guardian picked substitutes, but the UEFA haven't. Okay. Um, the Guardian substitutes are Kasper Schmeichel. Yeah. Joachim Mailer, the Danish left back, which I think is a great shout. He was yes, he was great. He was and great. if it wasn't for really Shaw and Spinazzola, I think he probably would have yeah, been yeah. the standout. Yeah. So that makes sense. They went Harry Maguire on their bench because they went for the yeah. Italian centre halves. They did. They they put Mikkel Damsgaard in there, which is great. Can't argue with that. Yeah. And then uh, there's someone I'll come back to, but they've put Benzema as well on the bench, which I think was was a decent shout. Like he definitely ignited France and. They might have been worse off without him, especially since Mbappe wasn't firing and they didn't start yeah. the tournament that great. Yeah. Um, so fair. But then the one I really have, have a contention with, and I think it's just because they won, is Marco Verratti. That seems strange. I think that's strange. Yeah. Um, I think again, I don't think he, he don't think he necessarily started the tournament in the starting eleven, and maybe because of injury or he wasn't particularly fit. Um, but no, I didn't. I don't think he deserves to be there ahead of ahead of a lot of other players. Um, he's just a bit. He got he definitely got better as the get as, as the tournament went on, and I think he was a bit uh, lacking of fitness because he was taken off after an hour, and I think he only got playing played ninety minutes the last couple of games. But uh, yeah, he's a, he's a bit of a Jorginho number two, except Verratti's a bit more dirty. Just gets more yellow cards and gets is more of a nuisance, but. You know, I think that on um, on the whole, that's a pretty good, pretty fair bench. Verratti's the only one I I would I would contend, but okay, I mean, that's a pretty good, go. pretty good. Here we go. Some players of the tournament, just to, to give him a final shout out before we uh, before we we start. Casper Schmeichel, no doubt, yeah. top babe, top player. If you're going to call him out as well, I think you've also got to call out Simon Kier, the Danish captain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially um, for that, that own goal he scored. That was great. <laughs> well, that was one. Yeah, I mean, if he hadn't scored that, I think, is it, is it Sterling right behind him? He's going to tap yes, it in it anyway. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, for his leadership and for him and Kasper as a as a pair of leaders in that first Finland game with the Christian Eriksen incident, they deserve plaudits not only for their footballing performance throughout the tournament, which was great, but also just as people, as as human beings they were, exemplary. Yeah. Goran Pandev. Shout out, Goran. Shout out to Goran Pandev for not necessarily being the best player at the tournament, but he led that team through adversity and he led them through proudly and he is a genuine hero. And Fair play. Yeah, and that's always... Uh, that's. Amazing to see. Um, Kevin De Bruyne as well. 
for coming back from injury and then absolutely changing everything in every game that he played. Yeah. Where it's like, and then again to my man Thorgan Hazard as well for you know everyone being like, well, we're going to play him at wing back so he can play his older brother further up the pitch. And then Thorgan Hazard gets two goals, I think, in the tournament. And Edin, I don't think, gets any. No. Um, a silent tournament for him. But De Bruyne, again, played, uh, just came on and swapped, especially in that game against Denmark. Uh, Denmark were controlling the game and then De Bruyne came on and then... Yeah, he just goes, all right, we're going to play my way now. And he just, yeah. he changes the entire team. He does the same for Man City when he's on when he's on the ball. He's just, yeah, world-class player that can change tournaments, not just games. Yeah. And I think it's kind of unfair not to give a shout out to, to Jack Grealish as well for knowing exactly what it is he has to do and then he comes on and he does it. Yeah. And, when he's given uh, enough time to. Yes. And he didn't complain. He didn't say, I should be starting games. He came on when he was told to and England played a whole lot more fun to watch when he was on the pitch. And we saw that in extra time as well in the final, where England in extra time pushed and pushed and did what they should have been doing for 90 minutes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was just too late. But he is that difference maker. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And again, Calvin Phillips, he's, he's in the teams. He, he should be because he what an amazing tournament he's done and what a way of showing himself to the world. Yeah, what well. a couple of years. Like coming yeah. up from the championship with Leeds, having a great first season in the Premier League and then becoming a regular in the England team and playing nearly every minute of the Euros all the way to the final. Yeah, yeah amazing. And it'll be interesting to see what if he stays at Leeds or if a bigger team comes in for him. Same with, um, I'm a like a West Ham fan and a, and a Saints fan. So Declan Rice, I'd love to see stay at West Ham, but he's you know probably our, easily our best player. So there's, there's been a lot of um, transferred speculation that he'll move on, which... Won't be surprising, but you know, you better hope we get money for him. <laughs> some good money. Yeah. For him. yeah. Um, I guess uh, you can also shout out some people like uh, Emil Forsberg, Swedish player who somehow, yeah. you know, scored four goals, got close to the golden boot. No one was expecting that, and Sweden did did remarkably well. So, so good on him. Um, but yeah, I guess we've we've given props where props were due. Uh, oh, we should have scumbags of the tournament. Go on then. Marko Arnautovic. Yeah, there he is. Scum, probably Flip scumbag the bird of that one. motherfucker. Scumbag yeah. number one, Arnautovic. Scumbag number two, the England fans. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, scumbag number three uh, was fucking Theo Hernandez, the uh, French yeah. fullback who yeah. pissed me off at the World Cup with his theatrics and yeah. weak-ass play, and he did the same thing in this tournament, and he can go fuck himself. Um, I don't know. I don't, in terms of players, I'm not sure there weren't that many more, which is, I suppose, it's just a nice thing. Yeah, it was a good tournament. A great tournament. It was a great yeah. tournament. And it's such a shame that it has to end specifically like this for us. Because other than that, what a tournament it has been. And it has been a joy to share it with you, David. Oh, and, and with you, Dom, yeah. It's, it's been special. And I was glad we got to do some of it in person as well as uh, like Yes, this. yeah. Well, I guess that's the end of, of Who Watches the World Cup for this tournament. We might come back with a few bonus episodes now and again, but... I think 
we'll see you next time in 18 months for the Qatar 2022 World Cup sponsored by Slave Labour. I was going to say, I'm sure we have a lot to talk about when we get to that. If what you're after is football and politics, let me tell you, it's going to get heated. Also because it's in Qatar. Yes, and players will be... Like, if, if COVID is not a problem in the winter 2022, which, you know, It's crossed, looking like it might be. But yeah. it probably will be. We'll also have to deal with players collapsing with dehydration in the, the Middle Eastern heat. Yes. This has been a, a major tournament with uh, where climate change has become a major issue. And I think we're going to see that even more as we go forward. Well, we're going to as we go forward, but especially once we get to Qatar. So, yeah. Fingers crossed we'll see you in 18 months and that the coronavirus or global warming doesn't uh, destroy international football performing. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. See you in 18 months, Tom. See you in 18 months. Bye. Bye.